0: If you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, what we've seen so far is that Stephen is this character and he's picked out by the disciples because of his wisdom and his faith. And the disciples appoint him to this position of really, really practical ministry. He's in charge of caring for the distribution of food to both the widow and the outcast in the early church. And see, even though Stephen is chosen for this area of really practical ministry, what we begin to see is God just begins to do a thing in and through his life. That all of a sudden we find out he's preaching the, the gospel, that he, he's doing these signs and wonders that God is just using him in a way that is utterly disproportionate to anything that could come from Stephen. And, and in response to it, in response to the way that God is actually working through this man, this crowd comes in opposition to that. And essentially they come and they're leveling four main accusations at him. Uh, that he's preaching against God, He's preaching against Moses, he's preaching against the law, and he's preaching against the temple. And so all we've been doing in this series we've called A Faithful God is tracking through Stephen's response to these accusations. And like any good Christian, his response to these accusations is just to pick up the Bible and start preaching through it. And he's using these uh, really familiar stories from the Old Testament, stories about uh, Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Moses, and he's using them to not only defend himself against these accusations, but to also point out to the crowd just how much they've missed the whole point of all of it. And and look, where we're jumping into things, Stephen's gonna be walking us through the life of Moses And as soon as he does, it becomes abundantly clear that this crowd, they have missed all of it. That God has been doing this amazing work through the people of Israel for the last 2,000 years, and because they have not understood what he was doing then, they are missing out on what he's actually doing right now. And so that's that's exactly what we're gonna be talking into tonight. So as I said, if you've got your Bible, Acts chapter seven, Acts chapter seven, and we'll be kicking off at verse 17. Uh, All right, so, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. All right, let's just get ourselves back up to speed quickly. So uh, Abraham, father of faith, uh, many sons had father Abraham, and father Abraham, many sons, many sons had father Abraham. Uh, Abraham fathers Isaac, Isaac fathers Jacob, Jacob eventually changes his name to Israel. He has 12 sons who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Cool? Uh, one of those sons is Joseph, not to be confused with Christmas Joseph. This is Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph. Uh, and sort of be- because of the life and, and the way God uses Joseph, towards the end of his life, uh, the people of Israel end up settling down in Egypt. All right. So, so that's where we're picking up the story in, uh, in the biblical redemptive history. Uh, And see, what happens is, not overnight, but over time, this favour that Joseph and his descendants had accrued with the Egyptians, it actually begins to wane. And what started off as a blessing of of land and and borders and a place within Egypt, over uh, over time eventually becomes the people of Israel being slaves in Egypt. And that's the state they, they find themselves in for 400 years. And during that time, God doesn't stop blessing them. They keep on multiplying, they're growing in number until it gets to the point where this new Pharaoh, this Pharaoh who doesn't know about Joseph, doesn't know what he did for Egypt, he begins to get a little bit worried that things are getting out of hand and that these Hebrews are actually going to become too strong and they're going to overthrow the Egyptians. All right, so verse 19, he being Pharaoh uh, dealt shrewdly with our race and he forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. In other words, this Pharaoh looks at this this growing problem of the the Hebrews uh, having so many children, and and he just makes a flat-out decree that every newborn Hebrew boy needs to be thrown into the river to die. And look, because I I know we've all watched The Prince of Egypt, and uh, we've read through our Bible at least a couple of times, uh, we, we know the story really well, right? So much so that we can read over a line like that and sort of... Just keep on going with things. But we need to remember, this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a story. These are real people who would have actually had to deal with the consequences of what they're being forced to do in this moment. I mean, can you just stop and imagine the pain of what is going on? Like can can you imagine that the mothers crying out as as babies are ripped from their arms and and fathers like stepping up to stop it from happening but they're being beaten down so that the, the Egyptians can follow through with this command? It, it would have been an absolutely like horrific and nightmare moment. And if you just if we zoom in on one particular family, right? Let's zoom in on the family of Moses. So just process through what the heavily pregnant mother of Moses would have had to be thinking through all of this. I mean, she's been watching this child grow inside of her for the last nine months, and, and the whole time, she's just praying, please let it be a girl. Not, not so she can like do dress-ups with this girl, not so she can play princess, she's just praying it's a girl so that when she gives birth to this child, she's not going to have to kill it. So when the midwife turns to Moses' mother and says, it's a boy, she's not excited. She's not celebrating. This is a moment of utter devastation because she knows what it means. And so verse 20, at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. So so Moses' mother, in the midst of all this, she, she has this child and she looks at him and he's beautiful. In fact, it actually says he's beautiful in God's sight. And, and look, I know every mother thinks they've got a cute baby, but I think we can all agree not all babies are cute, but this is in the Bible, so it, it must be true. And I definitely don't think it's Stephen um, heaping on praise on Moses because he's been accused of not liking Moses. But look, Moses' mother, she, she looks at this child and she's like, nah, I can't do this. I, I can't throw this baby that I love into the river. And so what they do is for three months, they keep the child hidden. And again, don't think fairy tale; think real life story. So that's three months of sleepless nights, waiting for the prison guards, the Egyptian guards to come crashing through the door and take this child away. That's, that's three months of stressing, that's three months of trying to keep this child a secret, and it's three months of wondering where God is in all of this. Like, is God still good? Is he still in control? Does he still know what he's doing? And look, eventually, Moses' mother, she loses that fight in her head. She gets to this point where she just gives up. So one night, she she wakes up. She takes this child that she loves and she walks down to the River Nile. And she, she pushes through the reeds. She places the child in a basket. And with nothing more than a broken prayer, and no hope that, that anything good can come from this moment, she pushes the child away. And, and look, what I need you to see in this moment tonight is God was at work in all of that. In all of the pain, in all of the heartache, in, in all of the mess of this situation, God never stopped working. That our God is a God who moves through the middle of our messes. That our God is a God who works through the pain. And, and what that means is when everything seems lost, when everything seems hopeless, when, when the walls of our lives are coming, crumbling in around us, what we need to know is God is still working. Because what I, what I think we can do sometimes as Christians is, is, is that sort of situation happens, Right? Like we walk through some pain, we walk through some real heartache, and, and I don't want to belittle that or make a lot of it because just like the, the, the situation here with the Hebrews, it is real, it is tangible, it, it hurts, and it makes no sense. And and what we we can tend to do in those situations is we can turn and say, God, why have you abandoned me? God, why have you forsaken me? See what, what we need to understand is Not only is God actually working, not only is he present in the middle of that mess, he is using all of it for our good and for his glory. For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. That church, God is sovereign over every situation. He is in control of every moment that that, that even when nothing makes sense, he is still in control. That church, when she leaves you, he is in control. When you fail and you fall into that temptation that you've been struggling with for the last 10 years, he is still in control. That when the bills come in and you don't know how you're gonna make ends meet and you don't know how you're gonna get it to the end of the month, he is still in control. When the prodigal leaves and they still haven't come home, he is in control. When the people you thought could trust, uh, you could trust, they betray you, He is in control. When the church hurts you, when you lose that person you love, when everything seems lost, God is in control. And look, I'm not saying God causes those things to happen. We live in a broken and fallen world, but at the very least, they pass through His sovereign fingers, and I need you to see that He is using it for His glory and for your good. See, what Moses' mother could never have imagined, never have understood in this moment, is that somehow when she places that child that she loves into the water, somehow a three-month-year-old is going to survive being washed down the River Nile in a picnic basket. That That somehow that child would end up floating past the very spot that Pharaoh's daughter was bathing in the river. That, that somehow not only would, would, would she actually see this basket floating by, but she'd send out one of her servants to go find out what it is. And, and not only that, when, when this child is brought out of the water and she looks at it and sees, oh, this is, a, this is a Hebrew child. This is a child my father has condemned to die. Somehow she looks at this child and says, no, I'm gonna keep him and raise him as my own son. That, that, that what she would never have known is that Somehow the child of a Hebrew slave would end up in the house of one of the most influential and powerful families in all of Egypt and somehow God would use the only Hebrew child to ever grow up in the house of Pharaoh. God would use him to bring salvation to his people. That church, there is no way you can read through the story and not see God stepping in and doing miraculous things when nothing makes sense. And so what we need to take from that tonight church, is, is that, we're not, we're, 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 that God is not actually taken by surprise when life goes wrong. He's not caught of God when things don't go the way we think they should, and, and, and what that means is sometimes God actually does his best work, when all we can do is walk down to the river and with nothing more than a hope and a prayer, give everything over to God. That C.S. Lewis once said, "Do not be deceived." The enemy's cause is never more in danger than when a human looks around upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still chooses to obey, yet still chooses to trust God. That God is working in all of that mess. And so verse 20 And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. All right, so as I said, Moses ends up growing in Pharaoh's household, and what we're told is as he grows up, he becomes this man that is mighty in words and deeds. And look, I I don't think this is Stephen heaping more praise upon Moses. I don't think this is Stephen stretching the, the truth at all. See, Moses would have had access to the best education the world would have ever known up until this moment in history. And what that means is he would have learned how to read and write in a time where most people were illiterate. He would have learned mathematics and philosophy and geometry and politics and astrology and astronomy. He would have learned economics. He would have learned how to lead people how to run a nation. And all of those skills are gonna come in a whole lot of use in 80 years time when when he is leading the new nation of Israel. And what's more, uh, Moses would have grown up in the the court system of Egypt, right? So he knows how the system works. He knows who reports to who. He knows who's under whose authority. He knows how to make things happen. So when he comes back in 40 years time and he's gonna say, let my people go, He's going to know exactly how to set up a meeting with Pharaoh because he's been in that system all of his life. That God just pours this blessing of abundance and provision all over Moses. In fact, he's given everything he could possibly ever need to do what God is calling him to do. See, the second thing I think we need to get our heads around tonight is is yes, God works through the pain. Yes, God works through the messes of our life, but just as much as He works through the pain, He works through the provision. See, maybe you're here tonight, and when you look back at the story of your life, it's not one you would describe as being defined by pain and sin and brokenness and hardship. Not that you haven't gone through those things. I mean, we live in a broken world. We all sin. We all feel brokenness. We all experience heartache. But... When you sort of look at the rearview mirror of your life, that, that's not the defining trait. In fact, if you look back at your life, what you see is a life marked by provision and blessing and plenty. Like maybe you're here tonight and, and you grew up in a Christian household. You grew up with a family where your dad prayed with you every night and you, know, you, you read the Bible together and going to, to church on a Sunday wasn't an option. <laughs> And you never missed a Sunday kids' church. And when you got old enough, you went to youth and you went to youth diligently every Friday. And then you hit the age of 18 and you didn't walk away. You didn't have that that prodigal season. You just kept on going to church. You kept on being faithful and like you look back at your life and you don't even have a clear moment where you can remember giving your life to Jesus because you've been following him for as long as you know. And see, what we, what we tend to sometimes do as a church is we, we take a story like that and we, we don't make a big deal about it because it's not flashy, right? It doesn't make for like a, a good testimony video or a good sermon illustration that, that we think somehow that doesn't show the extravagant grace of God. But, but church, do you know how much of a blessing that story is? Do you know how much of a blessing it is that that you can have had decades of of building an intimate relationship with the living God without ever having that season of of rebelling and walking away in a real way? Do you know how amazing it is that you could have developed a a consistent and effective prayer life in a world that is way more focused on on staring at your phone? Do you know how amazing it is that that you can be in your 20s and, and you know more of your Bible than some people will know in their entire life? Church, it is a blessing. It is provision upon provision upon provision. That, like, I, I can get up here, and if, if you fall into this category, like, I start preaching about Moses, and you know exactly where we're in the story. You know where we fit in biblical narrat- narrative. You know who Moses was. You know who his parents are. You know what's going to happen. You understand the story. And, and if that is you, what I need you to know is God has blessed you like that for a reason. He has given you that provision because he has a purpose for it. And it's not just so you can feel good on a Sunday and know your Bible stories. It's not so you can just look good in church. It's so that God can actually use you in a mighty way. That you can be the sort of person who can like serve on a youth team because you, you, you know your Bible. And when those kids come to you and ask questions, you, you just have responses to those. Or like people can come to you and they can ask for prayer and and they know you're actually gonna pray about those things consistently until something comes to pass. And look, I'm not saying that if you, you don't have that sort of testimony, you can't do those things, but at the very least, you've got a head start, right? Because that's what you've been doing for as long as you know how, that God has blessed you with that and he wants to use it in and through your life. Or, or look, maybe it's, it's not that sort of story. Maybe the thing that God has blessed you with and given you abundance in is just finances. That, that, don't get me wrong, you work really hard, you put in the hours, but, but somehow it's just like everything kept on playing out in the right direction, and everything was working and, and like God just blessed you. You have no other way of describing it. And now you've got more money than you really thought you would ever have. And look, if that's you, that's amazing. Like, enjoy it, go on the holidays, have the cars, have the big house. God is not afraid of you having stuff. But he hasn't given that to you for the sake of giving it to you. He's got a plan for you. He wants to use that. Like, maybe the reason God has given you a big house is so that you can be the sort of person to put up your hand and say, look, I'll lead a small group. I don't really know what I'm doing and I might need someone to help me with the the Bible prep part, but but my house can can hold a big group. Or or maybe the reason God has blessed you with financial stability is so that you can support others who are struggling and you can teach them how to manage their wealth well, that that God has given you this blessing and this provision and he actually wants to use it. Or or look, maybe it's just the abundance of time. That, That just because of the season of life you're in, you just got... A lot of time. And God wants to use that. Like, like you, you could quite easily, if you're honest with yourself, be here on a Thursday running around with a whole bunch of toddlers at mainly music because that's a free time slot. And and it wouldn't really impede on your schedule that much. Or you again, you can be the sort of person who, who stands at the door on a Sunday and, and greets or or puts their hand up again to, to run an alpha or a small group that you've got abundance in, in your time and, and God wants to use that. See, church, God is a God of abundance. He is a God that sometimes he just opens up the storehouses of heaven and he just blesses us in amazing ways. But he doesn't do that for the sake of it. That 2 Corinthians tells us, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, you will have all that you need to abound in every good work. That God works just as much through provision as he does through pain. And regardless of how much of each you have in your life, God wants to use all of it. And he wants to use all of it for his purposes and He has prepared you to do just that. All right, verse 23. And when he, being Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. <clears throat> All right, I, I need to be real for you a second. Um, I, I've read Moses' story like a thousand times. Okay, that's, that's an exaggeration, but I've read it a lot and I've watched the Prince of Egypt at least 10 times, so it's gotta count for something. Uh, <laughs> but look, every time I've read the story, this is the point that I always assume Moses has, has stuffed things up, right? Like he got ahead of himself, he let the anger get the better of him, better of him and sort of in a spur of a moment decision, he, he kills this Egyptian. And so he's trying to hush the other Hebrew who, who witnessed the incident, and he's burying the body in, in shame and guilt, and he's just trying to hide the whole situation and move on with his life. But if you look at the words that Stephen has used here, that's, that's not the picture he's painting, right? See, what we're told, and this is what Stephen tells us, is that it came into Moses' heart to visit his brothers. In other words, and this is what a lot of the commentators agree on, um, God actually begins to put this desire in Moses' heart to do something about the Israelite situation. That he sort of begins tugging on the strings of Moses' soul and he's saying, hey, Moses, my, my people are suffering. Hey Moses, I want you actually to go down there and have a look at what is going on. Hey Moses, I need you to step out and do something about the situation. That that pain and that provision I've put you there through you uh, put you through Moses is there for a purpose. Uh, the, the way the book of Hebrews will put it is by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, Moses is making a decision in this moment. He's making a decision to step away from the throne, to step away from privilege, from his upbringing, from, from everything he knew, everything that was comfortable, and instead he is stepping down into the lowly position of a slave. He is stepping down into the oppression of the Israelite people because God has put that desire in his heart. See, Moses isn't accidentally stumbling into the scene and sort of making the best of it. Moses thought God was calling him to go and save his people. That verse 25, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand And look, maybe there's an aspect where Moses is getting ahead of himself, right? Uh, Because you can do that. You can get ahead of God. Uh, In order to do something rightly, you need to do the right thing the right way uh, for the right reasons and in the right timing. So in order to actually do what God is calling you to do, you need to do it when he's telling you to do it as well. But I don't think that's the primary issue here. See, I think the bigger issue in this moment is that God's people The covenant people of God, they weren't actually ready to receive the blessing that God had for them. That verse 26, and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and he tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you wanna kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? See, what I think is happening in this moment is God is actually ready to move. He, he's ready to release the, the Hebrews from their bonds of captivity that God had promised them 400 years of captivity and he was gonna set them free and those 400 years had come to pass. But when God sends Moses to that situation, they say, no, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? See, God's hand can be ready to pour out blessing. He he can be responding to generations of prayer. He can be calling and appointing leaders and give them everything they need. God can be ready to move in a mighty way, but if God's people are not positioned in such a way to receive what God is doing, in fact, if they go as far as to actively reject it, then then what will happen time and time again is, is God is often willing to allow that blessing to go by unreceived. Or at the very least, he will postpone the giving of that blessing. See, church, don't get this wrong. God is working. He was working through the pain. He was working through the provision. But God's people weren't ready. They had gotten so used to the slavery, so accustomed to their chains, so used to things just being the way they are that God actually rocks up, and they reject what he is doing. And because of that, verse 29 at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons, that for the next 40 years they remain in slavery. And look, Stephen's given this sermon, right? And this is the moment I think he looks around at this crowd and he's like, You hypocrites. Do you not see how you're doing the same thing right now? See, history rarely repeats itself, but it it often rhymes. And just a couple of months ago, this crowd that is about to stone Stephen, they had turned to Jesus and said to him, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Uh, That verse 35, and I'm skipping a couple of verses, I'll come back to that in a second. Stephen turns to the crowd and and he says, "'This Moses whom they rejected, saying, "'Who made you a ruler and a judge? "'This man God had sent as both ruler and redeemer "'by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in a bush. "'This man led uh, led them out, "'performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea "'and in the wilderness for 40 years. "'This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, "'God will raise up for you a prophet like me "'from your brothers.'" In other words, Moses turned, oh sorry, Stephen turns to this crowd and he's like, guys, God is the one who sent Moses. God made Moses a ruler and a judge over you. He was someone to be both king and salvation, and God's people rejected him. And because of that, they missed out on what God was doing. But as good as Moses was, he was just a man. In fact, he was but a shadow and a forerunner of what was to come, that in every way, Jesus is the greater Moses. See, Moses was a deliverer born from among his people. So was Jesus. When Moses was a baby, the rulers and authorities of the time, they declared that every baby boy was to be killed. When Jesus was born, the exact same thing happened. Moses stepped down from a palace, a place of exaltation and power and glory, and he stepped down into the place of a slave to save the oppressed. And Jesus stepped down from his heavenly throne of glory, to become sin for us that we might be called his righteousness. That Moses did signs and wonders in Egypt and Jesus performed greater miracles still. That Moses was a shepherd of his people and Jesus is the greater shepherd. And then pointedly for this situation, this this crowd is in, Moses was rejected by his people. And so was Jesus. See, this crowd were living in the fulfillment of Abraham's promise that the Messiah had finally come and yet God's people were so accustomed to their religious practices. So accustomed to the the, the temple sacrificial system. So accustomed with with coming to church on a Sunday. So accustomed to the way the worship service sounded. So accustomed to just doing small group and, and your prayer time during the week and just living out the rest of your life so accustomed to the way things were, so comfortable with with what is familiar that God rocks up and he says, hey, I'm doing a new thing. And they miss it. And church, that terrifies me. Because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty comfortable here on a Sunday. I'm pretty comfortable with the way the service is run and Uh, You know, my my quiet time in the rest of the week and and going to small group and reading my Bible, I'm pretty comfortable with with the way things currently work. And it worries me because I don't want to be in the sort of situation where God could rock up and say, hey, I'm doing a new thing. In this time, in this place, in this community, in this city, in, in this country, and I could be so caught up in the comfortable and the familiar that I actually miss out on that. The church, we cannot afford to be a people who are so used to, to what is familiar that we miss out on what God is doing. I mean, if God decided that He wanted to save a thousand people this week in Kemal and He wanted to bring them all here next Sunday, how would we respond to that? I mean, would enough of us put our hands up and say, yeah, I'll, I'll serve so we can run an extra service? Yeah, I'll change my service time so that we can make space for them to be there. I'll start running a small group so we can actually disciple these guys and, and show them how to have a real relationship with Jesus. I'll step up. Or would we just complain about how difficult car parking would be? Uh, I mean, if God wanted to plant 10 churches out of Kenmore in the next 10 years... Would enough of us be, be on board for that, that, that God could actually work through us? I mean, even if it means we have to leave behind a community we've known and, and grown to love, even if it means we have to drive an extra 10 minutes to church or, or sit in a slightly smaller service or have a slightly lower quality of worship or uh, you know, tithe more generously so that sort of thing can happen, would, would that be worth it for the sake of the kingdom of God advancing? Or would it just interfere with what's comfortable and what's familiar? Or let's just forget big picture stuff, forget God moving in in amazing ways. What is if God rocked up and just wanted to talk to you? Just just one-on-one just give you some guidance, give you some direction where he wants you to go? Like what sort of job you should move to next or what sort of degree you should study or or who you should marry or, or where you should be serving? If God wanted to give you that sort of information, would we actually be able to hear him? Would we be drowning out his still small voice with the noise of this world? And, and church, I, I don't say that to, to bring condemnation over you or anything like that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I, I do believe God actually wants to bless us. I, I do believe God wants to work through us in amazing way. I believe he wants to talk to us and direct us. I believe he wants to reach this community and this city and this country, but we just need to be so careful that we don't miss out on that because we're used to how things currently are, because we're used to what's comfortable and what's familiar. All right, verse 30. So just skipping back, uh, coming back down to verse 30. Uh, Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. So like any good man, he sees something on fire and he's got to go check it out. Um, if you don't believe me, go to a, a camp and set something on fire. You'll have every like, youth and leader there in the next 10 minutes just staring at it. Um, <laughs> when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, and at this Moses trembled and he dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take the sandals off from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. For I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. That God turns to Moses and he's like, Moses, I'm not done here. I'm not done moving. I'm not done reaching my people. I'm not done doing things in this world. That he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I am the faithful God. I, I was faithful back then, and I will be faithful right now. The Moses, the pain I've allowed in your life, the provision I've poured out upon you, none of it is wasted. In fact, I've purposed it all for this moment in history. And, and look, this doesn't quite come across as strongly in, in Stephen's rendition of um, Exodus 3, which is where he's quoting from here, but, but it is abundantly clear that God is the principal agent in all of this. Uh, that God says... I have surely seen the affliction. I have heard their groanings. I have come down to deliver them. That that it's all God saying, it's me. I'm the one doing the work. But then he turns to Moses and says, Moses, I'm sending you. That Moses, I'm about to move in a way you could never have begun to imagine or contemplate. I'm gonna rescue my people. I'm gonna create from them a nation. From that nation, I will redeem the world. Moses, I'm doing a thing here and I am sending you. See church, as, as we land this tonight and the band can start coming up, what, what we need to understand is, is God is always at work. He's not a distant deity He's not a faraway God sitting in the sky, twiddling his fingers. He is closer than the air we breathe. And I promise you, he is working. And so what that means is, yes, he works through the pain. He takes it and he uses it for our good. He uses it for his glory, that he's a God who works through the pain. And yes, that means he works through the provision, that he will pour out the abundance of heaven in order to work through us in amazing ways. But most importantly, God works through peace that for some reason He chooses to work through us. So the real question question tonight is, 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 will we let Him? Will we partner with what He is doing? See, we've all got our own share of pain and we've all got our own share of provision. And I promise whatever combination you have of that and whatever that looks like in your life, God wants to use it. In fact, I would go as far as saying He has brought you right to this moment where you are right now so He can do amazing things through you. That, that none of the pain or the provision is wasted. It's all for His purposes. And we just need to be so careful that we actually, we don't push that away. We don't turn to God and say, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? We, we just say yes. We say, yeah, God, I, I want you to use that. I want you to use me. And look, I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't, that, that's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict you. That's that's not my job. But but I feel like right now, as we're sitting here together as a congregation, God is probably pulling on at least some of your, your hearts. He's tugging on those strings and saying, hey, do you remember the thing I asked you to do five years ago? Shouldn't you be doing that? Hey, you've been coming to this church for a while and and I've blessed you with that provision. Don't you think you should be serving? Uh, Again, I don't know what it is. And I don't know if it's gonna be a a big thing like God wanting to move through us as a congregation to to plant 10 churches or or if God just wants to come and move through your life in an individual way and and use you to talk to your next neighbor, but God wants to use you. He, He wants to move in your life. Look, the, the, the really only word I got that was specific this week is, as I was praying through this, is some of us have been saying no for a long time. Um, again, I don't know what that is, but like, just God, I've got this. I'll do my life my way. I'll come to church on Sunday. I'll I'll tithe. I'll I'll read my Bible. But no, God, I, I don't want to do it. And we say no because it's uncomfortable. We say no because it's hard. We say no because it's different from what we know is usual and normal. And I feel like the invitation tonight is just God saying, will you say yes? Will you say yes? Whatever that looks like, will you put the yes on the table and let God put it on the map? Will you let him tell you what he wants you to do? So okay, in a moment, I'm gonna pray and the band are gonna come and we're gonna finish with a song of, of worship. But if that is you tonight and you need to do some business with God, you need to come forward and just say yes, whatever that looks like. Would you just come forward to the front? Um, and, and there's some of the prayer team available and then they'll be around praying with you and uh, the pastoral stuff will be here as well. But God wants to work through you. He wants to use you. And all He's waiting is just for you to say yes. So Lord, Lord we, we just thank You that You are a good God. And that means You are good when we walk through those pain, that, that, that heartache, that You are using all of that for, for our good and for Your glory. We thank You that You are a good God. And, and sometimes that means You open the floodgates of heaven and You just bless us with extravagance. But Lord, we, we, we wanna be a people that say yes. We want to be a people that go when you say to go and, and we do what you say to do. But I just pray right now you would lead each and every one of us. That if there's something you need to tug on our hearts, you would do that right now. You would convict us. You would challenge us. You would encourage us. Whatever you need to do right now, Holy Spirit. And just just we would just have the, the tiny mustard seed amount of faith just to say, yeah, God. I'll go. Lord, you would take that that tiny amount of faith and you would use it to move mountains. Lord, we praise you and we glorify you. Amen.